Well, good morning, everyone. If you would turn with me to Acts chapter 24, that will be our text this morning, and hopefully we'll be able to get through the whole chapter. Acts chapter 24. Have you ever had a time in life where you feel as if uh, time is going by, but you're not really getting anything done? where you're kind of, things are just kind of staying the same, the world around you is moving on, and you're just kind of stuck somewhere. Maybe it's in a dead-end job that you once had that had no potential, no future, but you didn't really have much of a choice. Uh, as we get older, uh, we uh, may feel that way if we end up in a retirement home or something along those lines. And we can hit these points of time in life where it feels like, well, this just isn't very productive. I feel like I'm not getting anything done, and uh, it can feel kind of worthless. It can feel kind of sad. Um, Well, the Apostle Paul was about to hit one of these periods in his life where he was stuck. Uh, He would be stuck for several years at this point, but as we'll see, just because he was stuck it didn't mean that he was not unproductive. Just because he wasn't able to go anywhere, it didn't mean that God wasn't able to work through him. So that's what we're going to be discussing in this chapter, Acts chapter 24. So we will read it and pray and get on with our message. Acts chapter 24, starting in verse 1. Now after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders with an attorney named Tertullus. And they brought charges to the governor against Paul. And after Paul had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, As we have attained much peace through you, and because by your provision reforms are being carried out for this nation, we welcome this in every way and everywhere most excellent Felix with all thankfulness. But that I may not wear you any further, I plead with you by your forbearance to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a real pest, or pestilence, and a fellow who stirs up dissension among all Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader in the sect of the Nazarenes. And he even tried to desecrate the temple. And then we arrested him. And then if you have an NIV, you might not have this. Uh, If you have a newer translation, this will be in brackets. If you have a King James, you're wondering why I'm pausing. Um, This next uh, verse uh, appears in some of the later manuscripts. We wanted to judge him according to our own law, but Lysias the commander came along and with much violence took him out of our hands, ordering his accusers to come before you. By examining him yourself concerning all these matters, you will be able to ascertain the things of which we accuse him. And we Jews also, and the Jews joined in the attack, asserting that these things were so. And when the governor had nodded for him to speak, Paul answered, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge to this, this nation, I cheerfully make my defense, since you were able to ascertain the fact that no more than twelve days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. And neither in the temple, nor in the synagogues, nor across the city did they find me carrying on a discussion with anyone or causing a riot. Nor are they able to prove to you what they are now accusing me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I do serve. 
the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law that is written in the prophets, having a hope in God for which these men are waiting, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the unrighteous. In view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a conscience without fault before God and before men. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and offerings, in which they found me, having been purified in the temple without any crowd or uproar. But there were some Jews from Asia who ought to have been present before you to make accusation if they should have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves tell what wrongdoing they have found when I stood before the Sanhedrin, other than for this one statement which I shouted out while standing among them, for the resurrection of the dead, I am on trial before you today. But Felix, having a more accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias the commander comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion for him to be kept in custody, and yet have some rest, and not to prevent any of his friends from ministering to him. But some days later, Felix arrived with Drusilla, his wife, who was a Jewess, and summoned Paul, and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. But as he was discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix became frightened and answered, "'Go away for the present.' And when I find time, I will call for you. At the same time, he was also hoping that money might, uh, would be given him by Paul. Therefore, he also used to summon him quite often and converse with him. But after two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus, and wishing to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul imprisoned. Our Father, we are thankful for this time that we have, for the word that you have blessed us with. I pray that we would be able to draw out application for our own lives. I pray that you would give us understanding. I pray that we would be able to emulate Paul as he emulates our Lord Jesus Christ, that we would recognize you were at work even in the difficult times in our lives, even in times where we may feel as if we are stuck. I pray that we would always be conscious of what you are doing. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so here we have another court scene in the book of Acts, and this takes up much of this final section in the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul in court. And like any good court scene, we have the prosecution who comes and give, gives the case. In this case, the prosecution, the, the prosecuting party, are the Jewish leadership, Ananias and uh, various elders who are with him, and an attorney named Tertullus, and they bring charges against the Apostle Paul. And as we read these charges, we can uh, view these charges in many ways as charges that the unbelieving world has against the church. This is not the first time that charges have been brought against the church by the unbelieving world, and it will not be the last. The experience that the Apostle Paul had is not unique to Paul, and the animosity that the unbelieving Jews have is not merely for Paul, but it is also for Christ. We need to remember that there are forces who, that are at work in this world, forces of darkness that are ultimately against the forces 
of light. This was not merely a political issue, but Jews working according to their father, the devil, seeking to accuse Paul because of the one who he follows, the Lord Jesus Christ. Just as Jesus said to his disciples, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were in the world, the world would love its own, because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. Because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. So as we read these charges that are brought against Paul, we shouldn't be surprised that these charges that he faced 2,000 years ago are oftentimes the same charges that are brought against the body of Christ here on earth. So Tertullus begins his prosecution, and to start, he begins by buttering up the judge. If you're in the courtroom, you want the judge to be on your side. You want to be friendly with the judge, uh, hoping that perhaps you'll have some leniency, and that's exactly what we see here. Tertullus says to, begins addressing Felix, and he says this, As we have attained much peace through you, and because by your provision reforms are being carried out for this nation, we welcome this in every way and everywhere, most excellent Felix, with all thankfulness. So he begins by praising Felix. Oh, such a wonderful ruler you are. Uh, everything that you do is just so great. The reality is uh, he was stretching the truth to the point of breaking. Uh, however, as we see, this is his method of impressing the judge. Now, Felix ruled for quite some time over Judea, but he was by no means a good or a popular ruler. One Roman historian writes of Felix that he practiced every kind of cruelty and lust, wielding the power of a king with the instincts of a slave. After Nero became emperor a couple years after this event, Felix was called to Rome and he lost his position on account of his corruption. He was a very corrupt man as well. And Israel at this point of time, despite what Tertullus said, was anything but peaceful. Uh, Tertullus is praising him for the peace that is brought. Well, uh, you're probably not living in a very peaceful city if you need 500 soldiers to accompany one prisoner out of fear that a massive mob is going to swarm him and kill him. Uh, but anyway, uh, as, as I made note already, he's trying to butter up the judge. And after buttering up the judge, he begins to bring his charges against the Apostle Paul. We have found this man to be a real pest and a fellow that stirs up dissension. So Paul is a pest, a pestilence. And when we use the word pest, right, we say, we usually say it to describe someone who's being very annoying, right? James can be a real pest sometimes, uh, right? <laughs> uh, and that's just how it is. We think of a pest as something, you know, like a fly. It's buzzing around and it's bothering me and I want it to stop. The word being used here, rather, is describing a, a pestilence, a, a festering disease. He's not just simply saying, well, we don't really like this guy. He's kind of annoying. The word uh, is uh, the word's also found in Luke, and it's translated plagues. Luke chapter 21, verse 11, Jesus is warning about calamities to come. And he says there will be great earthquakes and in various places, plagues and famines, using that same word, pestilences. So in describing Paul as a pest, 
or a pestilence. Uh, he, he's not just saying, well, he, he's very annoying. He's saying this man is a source of a deadly cancer, a deadly disease that is spreading out among the people, and he must be stopped. He is destructive, a destructive force in this world. And this isn't uh, just the opinion of the leaders here, but this is how the Jews in Asia also described him as well in Acts 17. We remember when Paul, uh, after he had begun preaching to the Gentiles, the Jews said of him, these men have upset the world. And after they have claimed this, they formed a mob to uh, attempt to put him to death. So Paul is viewed as a pestilence, someone who is spreading his rot throughout the world and bringing that rot everywhere that he goes. And now they're charging him with being a pestilence, someone who stirs up riots, causes dissension among the Jews throughout the world. He's also charged with being the ringleader of a new sect, and the word translated sect is also the same word we use for heresy, right? It didn't always have that meaning, but the way they're using it is they're saying, hey, this is a brand new sect, this is a brand new group that really has nothing to do with us historically, and as you can see, is causing us real problems. So they're charging Paul with being a threat to the peace by leading a new religious sect something that certainly would have drawn the attention of the Romans. Remember, it was the Romans' desire to maintain peace, no matter what, wherever they had, uh, they had rulership. Uh, and they often used quite deadly force to do it. And remember, they had no problem with putting innocent people to death in order to maintain that peace. One of the reasons that Pilate allowed Jesus to be put to death is because he didn't want there to be swarms of mobs and angry Jews going crazy in the city that he was supposed to be ruling over. So the Romans cared about peace. So in charging Paul with being a troublemaker, with being a dissenter, they're painting the picture that, hey, this peace that you've given us, Felix, uh, this peace is at threat because of what Paul is doing. We're just trying to live our normal lives. We're just trying to go along. And here comes Paul with his message to disrupt everything. And isn't that how Christianity is so often viewed, right? Uh, we recently celebrated uh, both Columbus Day and Indigenous Peoples Day. Uh, they share a holiday, right? Um, but one of the big... Uh, one of the big narratives now is that, well, before Columbus came along and brought his horrible Western uh, ways, and the most horrible Western way that he introduced to the New World was, of course, Christianity. Before he came along, everyone was just living in peace. They're going about their own business, just living their lives, and he had to come along and ruin everything with his, uh, with his Christianity. And that's how the world views Christianity. It comes along and it ruins the good thing that we once had. You know, those, uh, uh, those Native Americans, you know, they were just having such a great time uh, minding their own business, cutting each other's hearts out, practicing cannibalism, all these various things, and Columbus came along and ruined it. But that's the, that's the presentation that is, uh, that's often given. And that's what they're charging Paul with. Hey, he's bringing along these new ideas. We're trying to just have a nice peaceful time here in this great Roman Empire, which you've provided us with. And he's trying to ruin that peace. And then finally, they bring up their one leading piece of evidence. And here's the evidence. Here's how you can know. He even tried to desecrate the temple. 
right? Because remember, this is where uh, the Romans initially came in contact with them, was this riot at the temple. Paul was at the temple, there's a great big riot, and the Roman soldiers had to intervene. And uh, this is the charge, that Paul was attempting to desecrate the temple. Uh, Remember uh, what the original charge was when they saw the Apostle Paul. Uh, Men of Israel, come to our aid. This man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and against the law in this place. And besides, he's even brought Greeks into the temple and he has defiled this holy place. The charge was that Paul is uh, forsaking the Jewish laws. He's teaching everyone to go against them. And he even brought a Gentile into the temple. This, of course, was a lie, right? It's amazing that their one key piece of evidence that they needed to charge Paul with this, a Gentile that he brought into the temple, was nowhere to be seen, uh, right? But they still were very happy to charge him with this. Uh, This, of course, as I said, was a lie, right? Uh, It's not unlike the case of the, the woman caught in adultery, right? Remember the woman is caught in adultery, And uh, Jesus says, you know, let the one who is without sin throw the first stone. Well, one of the reasons that they couldn't rightly bring judgment against her is because, well, what happens in adultery? Well, it takes two to tango, doesn't it? Why is it that just this woman is brought is brought over? If you're trying to charge, if you're trying to charge her with something, then where is the evidence, right? And in the same way, they're trying to charge Paul with bringing a Greek to the temple. Well, where's the Greek to be seen? But it doesn't stop the rest of the Jews from agreeing with these charges. Verse 9, the Jews also joined in the attack, asserting that these things were so. And Luke uses the word here, alleged or asserted, these things were so, showing that uh, it was not really so. They believed it was so, but the Jews, they only knew this by hearsay. None of the Jews here were eyewitnesses to anything that they were charging the Apostle Paul with. They had no real evidence that Paul had even done what they said uh, he had done. The charges were based ultimately on a lie. But as we've discussed, as human nature is, we can be very quick to believe a lie as long as it goes along with the narrative that we have in our minds, right? The Jews are more than happy to believe this lie about the Apostle Paul, well, because in their minds, they already knew Paul was a troublemaker, and they knew that uh, Paul showed no regard for the law. So because these things that they knew, these things that were lies, how much easier is it to believe the lie that Paul would also desecrate the temple? And that's how lies spread. That's how narratives grow. That's why when you watch the news, you can't believe anything that they say until at least two weeks later when the dust has cleared and we can look back with sound minds. Because of how many narratives are spun, uh, we're willing to latch on to anything that we hear and believe it so long as it goes along with our own preconceived notions. Um, and this is what we see here with Paul being charged, right? The, uh, tr- the, a lie has made it halfway around the world before the truth has even had time to tie its shoes, and we see just how far this lie has spread. Uh, so, uh, as, I dis- as I'd already said, um, these charges in many ways are not just charges against the man, the Apostle Paul, but these are the charges of the world against the church, against the Lord Jesus. They charge us with all kinds of of wicked things. As Christians, we're called to be peacemakers, right? Blessed are the peacemakers. 
But it doesn't mean that the world will always respond peacefully to what we say and what we do. And uh, uh, because of this, we can sometimes be afraid to say the right thing or do the right thing. Think of Paul. If he knew what was coming, uh, do you think he would have maybe questioned in his mind, yeah, should I do this or should I just keep my head down? We can be afraid to speak about the things that are going on in this world, even the things that may happen in this church, right? We're afraid to speak out against sexual immorality, for example, because we know that people who are sexually immoral will hear us and they will be offended, right? We're afraid to speak against the evils of abortion because we know that there are people who don't have a biblical view on it and they will be offended. We're afraid even to confront sin in our own church because if I come to Ned, for example, and confront him with his sin, I'm afraid that Ned is going to turn around and bite my head off and tell me, who are you to judge, right? We're so afraid to speak out uh, against these evils. Why? Because we're afraid of the reaction. We're afraid of the violent reaction. We're afraid of what other people are going to think about us. And we get and we justify it with this idea that, well, if I'm a Christian, I may as well just be peaceful, go along to get along. But that's not what the Apostle Paul did, and that's not what the Lord Jesus did either, right? Uh, we shouldn't, of course, be needlessly offensive. However, God has spoken, and his word is offensive. The Lord Jesus in uh, after he had spoken about how sin is what uh, comes from the heart. It is not from what you take in from the outside. The disciples came to Jesus and said, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement? And then Jesus said, oh, I, I didn't know I was hurting their feelings. I, I'm sorry. We better let them know that uh, we'll just, we'll do better next time. No, that's not what Jesus said. He answered, every plant which my heavenly father did not plant shall be uprooted. Let them alone. They're blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man guides a blind man, they will both fall into a pit. So, of course, as Christians, peacemakers called to be not, not to be needlessly offensive. Of course not. However, we should not be afraid of the conflict when it comes as a natural result of obedience to the word of God. Just as the Apostle Paul was not afraid of these, fall, of these charges that were coming against him. Paul then goes and gives his defense, uh, coming in verse 10. Uh, and when the governor had nodded for him to speak, Paul answered, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge of this nation, I cheerfully make my defense, since you were able to ascertain the fact that no more than 12 days ago I came up to Jerusalem to worship. So Paul first begins his defense by refuting the charges that were brought against him. Remember, the charge was that he's a troublemaker. He came to stir up all kinds of problems. Uh, but Paul, as he recounts it, was simply minding his own business. As Paul said, I've only been in Jerusalem. It was only 12 days ago when I showed up to Jerusalem. And during that time that Paul was in Jerusalem, what was he doing? Was he going from synagogue to synagogue, uh, debating and arguing as he typically did? Uh, was he arguing with people in the temple? Well, no. He was in the temple, yes, but he was engaged in prayer, carrying out a purification ceremony. He wasn't going around from synagogue or preaching in the streets or anything like that. The riot that started was not caused by Paul, and there's no way to prove those charges against him, right? Uh, he says, uh, they will, nor are they able to prove, or he says, neither, 
uh, in verse 12, and neither in the temple nor in the synagogues nor across the city did they find me carrying on a discussion with anyone or causing a riot, nor are they able to prove to you what they are accusing me now. And then he goes and gives a a a positive presentation of himself, contrary to the negative case that is presented against him. But this I confess you, that according to the way which which they call a sect, I do serve the God of my fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets, having a hope in God for which these men are waiting, and there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the unrighteous." So Paul, in his, presentive, uh, his positive presentation of himself, does affirm that he is in part of the way. Uh, he doesn't say that he's the leader of it. He is a servant in it. I serve this uh, sect, uh, this group which they call a sect, which is the way. However, when the way he presents the way is not as a contrary sect, not as some new idea that uh, had only been thought up in the past few decades. Rather, as he presents the way, he presents it as a fulfillment of what the Jewish scriptures teach. Paul was not part of the way in rebellion against Judaism. The reason that Paul was a Christian is because he believed what the prophets taught. Yeah, he was was a Christian because he was a good Jew, right? Uh, Paul believed what the Old Testament said regarding the Messiah. He has a hope in God, the same hope which uh, those who brought charges against him also claimed to have. He served the God of our fathers, believing everything that is written in in the law and in the prophets. Paul is saying that in my service of the way, I am doing nothing contrary to what has has been written in the scriptures. In fact, the only reason I'm in the way is because I believe those scriptures. The only reason I'm a Christian is because I wanted to be a good Jew. And he affirms the hope in God and the resurrection of the dead, of both the righteous and the unrighteous. And the resurrection, as we know, is not just a Christian teaching, but it is also rooted in Judaism. As the prophet Daniel writes, many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but others to disgrace as well as everlasting contempt. And as we saw in the last chapter, there is a great debate over the resurrection that was caused because of a division between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So Paul is presenting his case and saying, hey, I'm just trying to be a good Jew here. I'm just trying to live lawfully according to what the scriptures have to say. And then Paul gives his version of events leading up to his arrest. Right? He says, in this view, I also do my best to maintain always a conscience without fault, both before God and before man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and offerings in which they have found me, having been purified in the temple without any crowd or uproar. So why did Paul come to Jerusalem to begin with? Is it so he could raise up uh, a revolt? Is it so he could uh, have a riot? Is it so he could uh, do what he has done in other cities? Well, no. Paul says, no, I came to Jerusalem because I was bringing an offering. And this is the first time that Luke mentions it, but the other epistles fill us in on what this offering is. Remember, Paul had been going from church to church in the Gentile world collecting an offering for the church in Jerusalem. To the Romans, he says, I'm going to Jerusalem serving the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. And yes, they were pleased to do so. 
and they are indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. And that's what Paul was delivering, the material things to the church in Jerusalem uh, as a a thank you, as a, a note of gratitude from those churches in the Gentile world who have received spiritual things from there. And Paul had also spent a week in the temple and there was no uproar. As he said, I was in the temple, I was purified, they found me in the temple, there was no crowd, there was no uproar. He had been there peacefully, he had been there praying, purifying himself according to the custom of his people. And the trouble didn't begin until the Jews from Asia arrived and began to stir up the riot. And it was these Jews who were the supposed eyewitnesses as to what had happened. Remember, it was Jews from Asia who came and they saw Paul and they began uh, crying out against him. And he says that, and that's what Paul recounts. There are some Jews from Asia in verse 19 who ought to have been present before you to make an accusation if they should have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves tell what wrongdoing they have found when I stood before the Sanhedrin. And Paul now gets to the real reason of his prosecution, the real reason that he is in court today, because of his hope in the resurrection of the dead, because he has believed what God has spoken. Uh, As Paul notes, there's no real charge against him. The only thing that even Ananias could charge the apostle Paul with is shouting out while standing before him, for the resurrection of the dead, I am on trial before you today. So the real charge against Paul is ultimately that he believes the scriptures. That's what the problem is. The apostle Paul believed the scriptures. The uh, prosecutors don't. Therefore, they find a reason to bring him before the magistrates here on earth. And these charges against Paul, this is what, uh, these are the charges that the world ultimately bring against Christianity. Everything that the world has to say about us, every negative thing, uh, it ultimately boils down to they believe the scriptures and I don't, right? We're called hateful here in the world. Why? Well, because uh, we refuse to follow the world in their gender madness, right? If I don't call a biological male who demands to be called a female, if I don't call him a her, then I'm called a hater. Well, why? Well, because I believe what Genesis said. In the beginning, God created the male and female. We can't change that. What are we supposed to do about it, right? We're said to be against women's rights because we believe that the scriptures teach a baby is a baby from the time of conception, right? Uh, We may be called racist, for example, and this is the big word that's been thrown around the past couple years, right? We may be called a racist because we believe that God's justice is impartial, that there must be equal scales of justice, showing no favor to anyone one way or another, especially for something as uh, foolish as skin color. We may be called judgmental because we can point to the word of God and say, God says this is good and God says this is evil. And we may believe to be bigots, because we don't believe there's salvation in any other name of Jesus, right? All the charges that the world can bring against us, it ultimately has to do with us believing what the scriptures say. I think of uh, several years ago, 
Bernie Sanders, everyone's favorite socialist, Bernie Sanders. There's a, uh, a, a really interesting clip of, of him going around where he was interviewing a guy for some, some position, and this guy had been a professor at Wheaton College, and he had written an article about how salvation is found in, in the name of Jesus, and that uh, those who are outside of Christ, including Jews and uh, Muslims, are condemned. And Bernie Sanders is going nuts just questioning this guy about it. Did you really say that? Do you really believe that Jews and Muslims are condemned? How dare you, right? Well, how dare him for believing what the scriptures teach, right? That's ultimately what it boils down to. And oftentimes, uh, when we see charges like this, we need to think, okay, what's the root of the problem, right? What's the root biblical teaching that the world is going after in this case? So finally, we continue reading in verse 22. We get to the verdict, and the verdict was, well, it was undecided, right? But Felix, having a more exact knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, when Lysias the commander comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion for him to be kept in custody and yet to have some freedom. So the case is brought to a close as Felix waits for Lysias, the commander. And this probably wasn't his only motive. As we will read later on, we see that uh, he was hoping, at least at some point in time, to receive a bribe. Remember, Felix was not as upright as Tertullus painted him to be. Uh, and, and Felix was hoping that he would, uh, well, that the wheels of justice would be greased just a little bit to move things along. And two, Tertullus also probably kept Paul in custody to keep on the good side of the Jews to prevent any further disruption on his account. And it would be two years before any progress would be made, right? As is typical with any oversized, bloated, and corrupt government, things move very, very slowly in the case of the Apostle Paul. And it would not be until Felix is ultimately recalled to Rome and replaced with Festus that any progress would be made in Paul's case. Two years, as Paul is sitting there, day after day, waiting, all right, we have another court day coming up, is there going to be another hearing, what's going to happen? Two years years pass by. And this time may have seemed very uneventful, right? Luke just chalks it up as, hey, two years Paul waited. Uh, It may have been uneventful, but it certainly was not wasted. And it wasn't quite as miserable as we might imagine, right? This wasn't a complete imprisonment. He wasn't in shackles, uh, pinned to the wall for two years. No, he would be under guard at all times, yes, of course, but he wouldn't have been confined to a cell 24-7. He at least had some degree of freedom in the governor's palace. And friends also were allowed to come and minister and take care of his needs while he was in captivity. And though he didn't have the freedom as he once had to travel the empire as he once did, he still had the ability to do what God had placed him here in this world to do. And that was ultimately to share the good news with those who are around him. And in this case, it was Felix and his wife, Drusilla. We read in verse 24, but some days later, Felix arrived with Drusilla, his wife, who was a Jewess, and summoned Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ. 
So we're in, we already met Felix a little bit. We already know he's kind of a little bit of a rascal. Uh, and his wife, well, she really isn't all that much better. So she was a Jewess, as is noted. Uh, history tells us that she was the daughter of Herod Agrippa. So Herod, remember the Herod that got eaten by worms earlier on in the book of Acts? This would have been his youngest daughter. So she would have been uh, raised up in Judaism. She would have had some knowledge of the faith. Uh, she was married at one point. However, Felix convinced her to leave her husband in order to marry him. So Felix is her second husband, and uh, she is actually the third wife of Felix. Josephus, a historian at the time, says this, When Felix was procurator at Judea, he saw Drusilla and fell in love with her, for she did, ind- for she did indeed exceed all of their women in beauty. And he sent to her a person whose name was Simon, a one of his friends. A Jew he was, by birth, a Cypriot, and one who pretended to be a magician, and endeavored to persuade her to forsake her present husband and to marry him, and promised that if she would not refuse him, that he would make her a happy woman. So she left her first husband for the same reason very many people are always do, because she thinks she'll be happier with the second one. So uh, neither of them are, are very stalwart moral characters, it would seem. But for one reason or another, it seems that she and Felix had an interest in learning more about the way and sent for Paul in order to converse with him. So Paul, even while he is in prison, still has the opportunity to share the gospel. This was not wasted time on the part of Paul. And they heard him speak about faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 25, But as he was discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix became frightened and answered, Go away for the present, and when I find time, I will call for you. So notice that even when Paul was imprisoned, he didn't shy away from aspects of the faith that would have been uncomfortable to his listeners. Paul certainly spoke of the Lord Jesus, who he was, what he did, the salvation that is found through faith in his name. But in his proclamation of the gospel, he also draws attention to the moral responsibility that we have before God, right? The good news is not merely a call of mental affirmation, but a word that always accompanies believe is repent, right? Uh, Just as Jesus said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And Paul even described his own ministry in this way. Paul said that he kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and also Jerusalem and throughout all the region of of Judea, even to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate with repentance. Paul, in sharing the gospel with these two people, does not shy away from speaking about sin and judgment. What were the things that terrified them? Well, uh, we see that Paul spoke of righteousness, right? Being, this being upright moral character. He speaks of self-control. Now, I'll tell you what, uh, if you're on your third wife, you probably have problems when it comes to self-control. And he also spoke of the judgment that was to come. 
another very uncomfortable aspect of the faith. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to all men that, her pe- that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. So these are difficult parts of the faith because these are the parts that really make us uncomfortable because we recognize our own unrighteousness. We recognize our own lack of self-control. We recognize our own sin. And we recognize the call to the Christian faith is not a call to simply subscribe to, uh, uh, to, to something. It's not just simply hitting agree on your phone, right? You know, we all, we all agree to contracts all the time, as, as I'd made note of. And we, what do we do? We hit agree and we go on with our day. But Christianity is different. When we become a Christian, we become part of the way. And we follow the one who is the way. And the one who has called us apart from this world has called us to new life. And if we are dead in our trespasses and sins, well, we are often very comfortable where we're at. And we see the response of Felix when Paul is talking about these things. Well, his response is fear. This obviously made Felix and his wife very uncomfortable, as any discussion of sin and its consequences would. And though this fear caused him to depart from Paul, well, it did not ultimately drive him to the Savior. As we see, he did continue to meet with Paul throughout the two years. He summoned him quite often, but he only did that hoping for a bribe. And it seems there's no indication, at least here, that he ever did heed the warnings which were given to him. So, in conclusion, uh, a couple things that we can all take away from this. One, though we all may be charged with all kinds of evils, we do not need to be worried about when those charges come. Paul didn't shrink back when the Jews began to accuse him of all kinds of horrible and wicked things that he did not do. Right? Uh, as, the, as Peter writes in his epistle, For what credit is there if you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and you suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. Right? So Paul, unwilling to compromise on the truth, always willing to do what is right, well, he endured consequences for it. But he endured under it. And we, likewise, should not, have, uh, should not compromise in order to, to avoid any conflict that might come along. It would have been very easy for Paul to tone back his message, to say the right thing in order to avoid trouble. However, he stood firm in his convictions and he trusted God with the outcome, whatever that outcome would be. We need to remember that the message ultimately comes from God. We are merely the messengers. If I read from this, if I accurately present what this is, it is not me who is giving the offense. This is the word of God. I can only uh, claim to be a messenger, right? Uh, So one of the reasons that Paul was able to stand so steadfast is because he was standing on that foundation of Scripture. And it should cause us to ask, why do we believe the things that we believed? Well, we should believe them because we're convinced of the truth of scriptures, and they compel us to believe them. If we don't have that foundation of scripture, then we're going to be easily swayed from one opinion to another, right? If we're not committed to the truth of scripture, even when it's uncomfortable, if we're not committed to the truth of scripture, even when it's uncomfortable, 
we can be tempted to bend the truth in order to maintain peace, right? And how many times even in our own lives when the scriptures confront us with our own sin, do we look for ways to maybe bend the truth one way or another so it it doesn't exactly fall on me? One, uh, I think of many of the recent pro-LGBTQ theologians who are now uh, offering an apologetic for, for this behavior. And oftentimes, they only come to their conclusions after a family member comes out as part of that community, right? And because they're unwilling to confront their family member even in that, they're willing to take what the scriptures say and twist it. Let's not be like that. We need that firm foundation. Finally, we need to recognize that God is working and act accordingly, even when things aren't going according to plan. What would you do? What would you think if you learned that from now on, for the next two years, you are going to be confined in your home or in a prison or in a hospital or in a nursing home or a retirement home? If you're going to be stuck there for the next two years, how would you feel about it? Well, I wouldn't feel too good about it. Um, but we can, uh, many of us will look at this and think, well, that's two years down the drain. That's two more years I can't get the things done that I want to get done. That's two years wasted. But that's not how the Apostle Paul viewed it, right? Uh, Paul did not view it this way, but he saw it for what it was, an opportunity to be a minister exactly where he was and share the gospel with those who otherwise would not have heard it. And then uh, finally, we need to be prepared to share the truth as the Apostle Paul was in intimidating circumstances. We need to be prepared to talk about righteousness, self-control. We need to be prepared to talk about sin and its consequences. We need to be prepared to talk about the judgment that is to come and to warn people about these things. When we know someone who has a very public and unapologetic sin, Right? That's probably the last thing that we want to talk about them when we are in their presence. And this would be doubly true if that person in question had some kind of authority over you, as Felix had over Paul. Right? Uh, however, we should not be intimidated when the opportunity to share God's truth comes around. Right? Our Lord has more authority than all the kings of this earth, and we are his messengers, and we've been called to speak with that very authority. And then finally, even for us, if we, what happens when we are confronted in our own sin, right? What happens when Paul comes to us? Let's say we don't know the Lord Jesus yet, and I don't know the spiritual circumstances of everyone in this room. But if there's someone in this room who is feeling that discomfort at the idea of sin, of the idea of judgment to come, talking about these things of self-control, well, the very last thing we should do if we're in that position is what Felix did. Now, Felix was certainly afraid, and that fear is God's warning system built into us. However, much of mankind is very good at ignoring warning systems, right? How many of you drive around in a vehicle with a check engine light on, right? Have you checked on that check engine light? Are you worried about that? No, probably not. The first time it comes up, you see, "Uh uh-oh, this might be a problem. But then you keep driving, and you think, oh, this is fine. And you keep driving, you get more miles down the road, oh, things seem to be going okay. I must not have, uh, I probably, sh- I, I was right to not worry about that, right? But then the engine stops. Well, God 
gives us a check engine light when we're confronted in his word, but we can be very good at ignoring that check engine light, but we can't ignore it forever. We'll either address it by coming to Christ in repentance and faith, or we will ignore it until it's too late, face the destruction that is the judgment that is to come. And in closing, there's a, a, an interesting poem that I found regarding this very idea. Uh, the, the poem about a man and how he put things off, right? Put off maybe even coming to Christ. We read, He was going to be all that a mortal should be tomorrow. No one would ever be better than he tomorrow. Each morning he stacked up letters he would write tomorrow. Who can say what a credit he might have been tomorrow? The world would have known him if only he'd seen tomorrow. But the, facts, the fact is that he died and faded from view, and all that was left when his living was through was a mountain of things that he intended to do tomorrow. Today is the day of salvation. Don't wait for tomorrow. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we are thankful for this time that we've had together to be confronted, to be challenged by your word, but reminded of the great salvation that is found in our Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, he does, he comes, he confronts us in our sin, and yet we can find the forgiveness of our sins in him because he lived a life that we could not live died the death that we deserve to die, rose again from the dead on our behalf, is now seated at the right hand of God for us. We're thankful that we can draw near to you through your Son. We pray that you bless the rest of our day and we give us the courage to live in light of this truth that we have read in your word. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.